Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Podcast. I'm Jordan Holzer, proudly part of the Believe Podcast Network. In each episode, we'll be covering 90s, 2000s, film, TV, and pop culture. I'm not alone. Each episode, I'll be having on special guests to help me relive my childhood. Thank you to Weedis for the intro music. Speaking of Weedis, we are actually joined by the lead singer and guitarist for Weedis, Brendan Brown. I love the song Teenage Dirtbag as I think it really summed up the early 2000s and really served as an anthem for kids like myself who felt like they didn't fit in at the time. A few weeks ago, I was reading an article in Rolling Stone and it was all about Weedis. And what I read, I flat out couldn't believe. Our intro song is actually not the same song from the original album released in 2000. Brendan and the band attempted and I think succeeded to do something I have never heard of before in music history. They recreated the entire first album, including Teenage Dirtbag, and recorded it note for note, trying to perfectly match what they did 20 years ago. Brendan will talk a lot about it on this episode. It was an almost scientific process of recreating it, and the intro music is in fact the 2020 re-recording of Teenage Dirtbag. I know for an average listener, you really can't tell the difference, but to him, the artist, the musician, he spent countless hours in dollars trying to mimic the exact sound of the first album. The entire re-recorded album is set to be released later this year. So you may be wondering, why would Brendan and Weedis have to go through the painstaking process of matching exactly what they did 20 years ago and spending, like I mentioned, all this time and money trying to get it perfect? Well, you're just going to have to wait and hear it from Brendan himself. So let's get into my interview with the lead singer and guitarist for Weedis, Brendan Brown. So we um, decided to just do it again. It's a little tedious, to be honest. Uh, it's not, there's no discovery. You know, it's, yeah. it's very old material. So, um, but, uh, but bit by bit, we're, we're putting the blocks packed together and uh, Humpty Dumpty's going to be <laughs> going to be whole again. Because <laughs> <laughs> what you sent me, I thought that was the original song from 2000. It sounds identical. For my listeners who don't know, the 2020 Teenage Dirtbag and the 2000 Teenage Dirtbag, they're basically note for note. I even think that you went and got the same instruments they were using back in the day. Like how much of a process, I won't ask you how much money you spent, but the amount of time and effort it took to literally recreate it. And for somebody like myself, who's not maybe musically inclined, maybe the layperson wouldn't notice a simple difference, but to you, the musician, the artist, how much of that meticulous kind of nature played into recreating the song? Um, well, we didn't want to fail, you know, we didn't want to screw up and have a facsimile, you know, something that didn't quite hit the mark. Um, uh, different, but also cool. You know, <laughs> we, <laughs> were, we were definitely afraid of that because why do that? You know, I mean, yeah. uh, if we're going to do something different, we would do something way different. Like if you go to uh, YouTube and check out paste magazine, I don't know if you saw that version recently, yeah. um, but that's a very, that would be a very different, you know? Um, but we weren't, we, 
like I said before, just making ourselves putting filling that hole in our hearts of like the, the multi-track masters from our first album are gone uh was like you know we can still do it we can still do this let's do it again you know and um uh the process was as i said like extremely forensic like researching the the you know co making phone calls to old friends old people that we worked with and saying what do you remember what we did that day when we and and trying to figure out how exactly how we dialed in those that original set of, of sounds. And in some cases, we, I would say about 95% of what we did originally, we were able to redo. Um, and uh, some of it, some of that 95% was sort of like, oh yeah, we did that and that was not the best way to do that. Um, let's try the right way and see if it's a little bit better. And what we wound up with was a version that, as like you were explaining, you can't really tell the difference but there's something to me uh, feels more like the band that I'm in now, you know, a band that's been on the road and we know each other and we can read each other's minds and it's 20 years, you know, of touring. Um, we just do things a little bit differently now, a little bit smarter, a little bit more careful. Um, and, uh, and it's, of course like studio experience is a whole bunch of mistakes that we aren't going to make again. So um, we just figured it was, a, it was the right time to do something where, um, People couldn't tell the difference, but yeah. what wound up happening, you know, after the Rolling Stone article happened and the YouTube version of it went up, um, it got a copyright uh, strike or notification, I should say, um, on the master, which was to say that Sony Music uh, were mistakenly claiming it as the original. Oh, really? That's got to be the highest form of praise though, right? Highest form of praise and most dangerous situation for us simultaneously because the whole idea of this was to own our own original you know first album masters a lot of bands never get the chance to do anything like that you know yeah all sorts of examples of tom petty going to war with his label and bruce springsteen hiding you know multi-track tapes under the bed for <laughs> uh darkness on the edge of town and like all this like there was a there's a lot of precedent for bands not being able to reclaim their first effort and um uh we we didn't we last thing we wanted was to get into a protracted sort of like no really it is different you know like with a with a big multinational corporation so um we very carefully and very sort of like with details and like i said the forensic process was uh documented all along the way so in the end we were able to show them hey no look this is how we were able to recreate this in fact we went through a great deal of trouble to avoid it being the original, but still be like, you know, us doing, cause we're the same people being able to do the same thing again. Um, and you know, uh, nine weeks after the Rolling Stone article came out and we got the claim, Sony music released it. So now we're, um, we're happy to say that, uh, the debut single release for Apple music and Spotify is happening, uh, in August. Awesome. Yeah, and we're, we originally intended to drop the whole entire album on its exactly on its 20th birthday. Um, the COVID thing kind of fucked around with that quite severely. So um, we're a month late on the single, and uh, our goal now is to deliver the entire 20-song version of our first album by, dis by Christmas or so. Um, uh, and I say 20 songs, that's something. Our first album was actually 10 yeah process of 
sort of going through the forensic thing, trying to find old tapes and everything, we discovered, you know, it's like 13 other songs that were never recorded that kind of belonged on out or felt like they belonged on album one that had kind of had the vibe. So, and we, because of that, they were shelved through the years. It was like, nah, that sounds like our first album. (laughs) So, so we, so we put those aside, but then we unearthed them for this. And, um, it's almost like uh, releasing an alternate universe version of our first record. Yeah. But that's going to be the full package um, uh, before Christmas. We'll have that out. That's awesome. It's like the Stranger Things, the upside down version of the album, right? So without going too deep into, you know, copyright law, I think my listeners, it's important for them to understand, you know, how artists make money, you know, in exploiting their work. Can you go into a little bit of why not owning the masters yourself really prevents you from capitalizing on the album the way you would like to? Right. So when you sign a major label deal, you give your, uh, your master recording, which represents one portion of the copyright of music, you give the rights to that to your label. And from that, they recoup whatever advances they gave you, whatever promotional money they spend, tour support, whatever else, right? Um, except it's sometimes, most of the time could be the goal, especially with successful bands, that they never, ever, ever wind up having to pay you they never let you recoup in other words you know so wind up owning that master for for in perpetuity um and uh if you had that's called the that would be referred to as the master's side of the copyright then there's the publisher's side of the copyright which is the idea of the song not the actual recording but the idea of its music and lyrics so um that side, we were lucky to retain 50% of uh, in my publishing deal with EMI. And um, now that we have the master, we have the master's side as well. So this master is not contracted to Sony, is not the original. I actually can receive a call from a, a music supervisor who's making a movie, who's been dying to put Teenage Dirtbag in their movie for years, and they finally got the chance. And guess what? They can use the new one, which like you said, you can't tell the difference. So that's the idea here is to be able to say, okay, we're open for business on our own music for once, you know, Um, uh, you know, which is weird because um, a lot of people would kind of say, um, what do you mean? You don't make money off of it in the first place. And it's like, no, you don't, you know, you really don't. Um, That recording that you worked so hard at creating, and that went on to sell 5 million copies or whatever, uh, you don't get any money from that for, for years and years and decades, you know? So, um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's for licensing purposes. And also, um, to, to make it a little bit more simple, we've been, since the beginning, we've been DIY, sort of like, um, like a, small, a small-time operation. And you reached out to me, and we communicated almost instantaneously. It wasn't complicated. There wasn't a manager. There wasn't a law firm, blah, 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 you know? Um, <laughs> no publicist trying to tell you what to ask me or anything like that, you know? So that's the way we prefer it. And uh, now we can have it that way with our first album. That's incredible. And it must be such a liberating feeling after all this time to finally have something that's entirely your own and your own work and you own the, you own the copyright in it. Is it after all this time, looking back on this process of recreating the album, what is the sense of kind of like, is it a sense of accomplishment? Is it relief? Is it just, you're glad it's done? How are you feeling about it now? Relief. Um, sense of accomplishment is hard to, it, that's really hard for me to, always been hard for me to grasp. I, I don't, I, uh, 
that feels ephemeral to me or something, you know, like, I don't really know what, what that's supposed to feel like, but uh, relief at knowing that uh, what once was dangerously possibly not in existence is now in existence in like, and it's backed up on six hard drives and <laughs> it's like, where, you know, it's on the cloud. So blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, it was a sense of relief and reclamation, I guess. So I have to ask a personal question. You feel free not to answer, but I know you've been working on this with your girlfriend who's also a member of the band, right? Mm-hmm. How has it been working with her on this? Cause I imagine, I don't think she's been an original member of the band back from 2000 but recreating this with her where it's such an obsessive feat for you. And is she kind of looking at it the same way that you are and that everything has to be meticulously done? Or is at times she's just like, let's move on. We got it. Or how has it been working on it with her? So Gabrielle is an artist in her own right. And um, she's also a meticulous songwriter. And we sit for hours and she'll play me like variations on her bridge and which one, which bass harmony do we go with and blah, blah. So we're of like minds when it comes to that sort of detail. This was uniquely challenging for me alone. Uh, something nobody, no member of the band could really go through with me uh, because I was going back 20 years in my like brain to figure out, to remember, to really remember and trick myself into doing the same things over again. Um, finding the same spots with the dials on this on the vocal preamp so that there was just a little bit of distortion but not too much that all of the things that appealed to people about the first version of teenage dirtbag um they ride on a on a knife edge of of being right and a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right or a little bit up or down is not the same thing so it and it would no, you'd notice so it was um I spent a lot of time alone, uh, frankly, do, doing this work on this, which is re- kind of reflected the way that I conceived of the first album from, from 1994 or so, late college years to um, 1997 or so. I was, uh, I was on my own with this record, prototyping and trying to find my own voice, drum machine and beat arrangements and stuff like that. And really in the solitary uh, laboratory trying trying to cook something up that I would be confident forming a band around you know um, yeah there's a little bit of that again which is which is which was really strange because since then it's been a group effort for touring for making records for everything I mean this band has had 30 members um, for the most part we're all on good terms and we and we still talk and everyone comes back for a reunion now and then and we do some you know we hang out with each other. We see each other socially, you know, but, um, but the, but the, that one part of the process was, I was kind of on my own and I couldn't blame Gob for, you know, not understanding it because I only barely understood it myself. And it was something I actually did, you know? So, yeah. At the uh, end of the day, it's really your passion project, right? Yeah. And like I said, man, there's so, like, when you make a new record, there's like, Oh man, we're discovering this, this kick drum sound is amazing. And it's new, everything's new and it's a discovery process. And when you do something like what we just did, it, there's nothing new driving you. To, to, <laughs> oh man, we got to figure out how to get that hi-hat right again. I don't know, how, what did we do? How did we do that? I don't even remember. Like, you know, so uh, yeah, well, it's not, I can't say that it was like a joy fest. The result is, but. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, so I want to take you back now. So growing up, I believe you grew up in Long Island. Is that correct? Northport? Yeah. 
So I'm from Westchester originally, so glad we have two uh, New Yorkers here. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm so curious, you know, what kind of music were you listening to growing up and trying to find your own sound? Oh, so much. Like, so much different eclectic influence that you could get beat up for it. Like, um, like uh, my parents, the music they played was a lot of Willie Nelson, a lot of old soundtracks, The Sound of Music, um, uh, lots of Beatles, uh, Bob Marley. Um, Huey Lewis in the news, um, Fleetwood Mac. My mom had a, had a reel to reel and we had rumors on reel to reel. And I knew how to use that thing when I was like four, I knew how to play, play, uh, secondhand news when I was on, like when I was four years old, you know? So, um, it was, uh, there was always a tactile, uh, eclectic music influence. Like before I became a person, like, you know, year zero through, uh, through six or whatever, seven, you know? Um, and, uh, early on I was fascinated by Bobby Darren and Sean on, and like Mac the knife. I used to like dance in front of the like mirror singing Mac the knife, you know? Um, it was a thing. But then, uh, then when it, as I got older, I got into, I was drawn to, uh, heavy and funky music. So like Prince, and ACDC, Metallica, um, uh, had a bit of a Cyndi Lauper phase. Um, and then when I discovered Rush when I was like 14, 13, 14, it was like there was a Rush phase that was strictly guitar and harmony and like rhythm that was like, oh my God, I really need to spend a few years on this. Um, but all through that time, it was always about songs, you know, it was about like, like I liked, uh, uh, you know, and justice for all as much as I liked, um, all through the night by Cindy Lauper. Like, it, and that was the kind yeah. of, you get an ass whooping for like, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, because it was sort of factional, like you were either a metalhead or you were, you know, whatever. But, um, I, uh, yeah, it was like that. It was like that. And then, and then as I became a teenager, it was mostly heavy stuff. The Iron Maiden, you know, I stole Power Slave from this bully asshole's older brother for when I was like 12, you know. Um, and uh, uh, Number of the Beast, and of course, and, and lots and lots of ACDC. There's, a, there's almost no ACDC song I can't play on guitar. It's, you know, I have that. I could go back to that if I needed to. It's like um, riding a bike, right? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, I take me a minute, but I can find it, you know, cause I spent so much time when I was a kid doing that, playing along to that stuff. That was the important thing. At some point I took a few guitar lessons and my mother showed me how to play, um, my girl by the temptations cause she plays guitar. She's a folk guitar player. And, um, uh, from that experience, I kind of took it on my own. After a few lessons, I got really to the point where I was like, I was getting bored, like getting bored, not with the music, but just with the notion of showing up and sitting there for a half hour with a dude who shows me like six different ways to make a G chord, you know? And I said, screw that. And I kind of went around the age of like nine or 10. <clears throat> I, um, I started figuring things out for myself, just listening to the stereo and like finding the note, the root note of what key the song was in and going from there. That's a really different process because what you're doing there is you're not learning how to play guitar, you're learning how to play music with other humans, you know, um, other extremely talented professional. <laughs> so, 
so if you're like measure trying to measure up to angus young eight hours when you're 13 eventually you learn how to play guitar you know um which is what i did so and what kind of student would you say you were growing up? I think people have this image of you, you know, from Teenage Dirtbag, that you're just, you know, this outcast, this outsider that didn't really fit in. How accurately did that portray what you were actually going through as a kid? I was a sort of a moderate student. I had an undiagnosed reading disability uh, all the way up until I was about 20. I have um, a rotated nystagmus, which is kind of rare. Every time I go to the ophthalmologist, they're like, hey, everybody come in here. <laughs> um, and they get the book out. But uh, one of my eyes, is rotated slightly on its axis oh, so wow. i have no stereo vision right so huh. i so I like one eye is peripheral and the other is focal and what happens is, is you have like twice the eye fatigue when you're reading because you just you can only use one and then the other one tries to kick in but it kicks in, in the wrong <laughs> spot so uh, test taking uh reading assignments even though i loved information that I was reading and I love to gather information that way. It was just a physical hindrance to me being able to finish a test on time or complete a reading assignment on time. The error I had to put in twice the work. And I only really discovered that there was something, something like actually wrong when I was in, I went into college uh, for pre-med and I, um, I failed uh, a biochem, which was like, I had never failed a class before. I didn't understand. I had, I was like, Oh wow, something's really wrong. I was applying myself and I failed. I don't get it. Um, and it was the uh, peptide chain equations that were, you know, like this long on a landscape <laughs> piece of paper and on a test. And I just was losing my place like all the time and making tons of mistakes. So I went to by myself, went to an eye doctor, a different one than the one I had grown up going to. And he was like, Oh yeah. I wish I saw you when you were four. <laughs> He's like, I could have corrected it with surgery. You're fucked now. So, you know, it's, it was one of those things where I was like, God, I'm not the student. I, I could have been, uh, but, but I, I, by that time I had been so obsessed with music and replaced so much of my drive and my interest in, but with music that I was kind of like halfway through college, like what the hell did I come in pre-med for in the first place? So all I ever do is play guitar. So that's when I started like um, auditioning for bands. When I was at University of Scranton, Pennsylvania, I was like driving back and forth to Manhattan on weekdays, on weeknights to audition for bands and then coming back and, you know, crashing in Pennsylvania. <laughs> the four hours worth of driving, but I got to play guitar with people I didn't know who were like pros and stuff. So, um, but you ask what kind of a student I was, if you're talking about high school, um, yeah. uh, Sometimes dirtbag lyrics would lead you to believe I had some sort of experience like that, and I did not. Um, not even close. Dirtbag is a fantasy. I went to a boys' school where um, it, was, uh, it was, you know, an hour and a half away from my home. I had to commute on a train um, every day, Long Island Railroad, what you would know as MTA. And, yeah. Or Metro North, rather. Metro North. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, it was like... Um, I was 13 and I got up at five o'clock in the morning and put my little tie on and like, you know, business jacket and my knapsack. And I went to some faraway town, which was closer to Queens than it was to my own home. It was about 10 minutes away from Queens. And then I would come back at night. I was like a commuter kid. So there was no like social life to speak of. It was just like ideas about social life, you know? Um, 
I didn't start hanging out with kids from my high school until the end of my junior year when I could drive. And even then it was like, grandma, can I borrow the Mazda for, for a, a night? You know, and then you had to come home. By the time you got there, you had to go home. So, um, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was kind of isolated and extremely isolated, I should say, and uh, pretty lonely, but I substituted all of my, um, what would have been a social life. I was like playing guitar on the weekends. I had a pair of sweatpants that I like dedicated for like Saturday morning guitar sweatpants, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the way kids who were on the soccer team would like have their cleats or something. I, I was like, it was my weird little world, you know? <laughs> so there was no Noel? No one, no childhood crush that you based that off of? No. Uh, my brother went to grammar school with a person named Noel, but I didn't know her. Um, I don't know. I didn't know anything about that. It was just with where, where one of, where I, the first time I heard the name, I guess. But um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, the Teenage Heartbreak is a, is a concoction. The setting is accurate. Um, that sort of air of violence. I don't know if you were reading the Rolling Stone article and read about the murder yeah. and, and all that. But um you know, Northport was this like super gothic, weird, dangerous, like burnt out fishing town when I was a kid and um, lots and lots of drugs and like just like fistfights. I mean, I don't, I don't really know how many fistfights I was in by the time I was nine. I had no idea. You know, it was countless. So, um, yeah, it was a different different way to grow up than they do it now. I'm, I'm happy to say. Um, but uh, but it was uh, uh, not it was unpleasant. Um, you know, taught me how to lose a fight, but you know, I mean, you have to really figure out what that's worth <laughs> when you're an adult, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. And you stumbled across this body. I didn't No. Um, what had happened was, uh, I was, I was, uh, 10 years old, about to turn 11 in the summer of 1984. And uh, I was like BMXing, skateboarding listening to Van Halen, like, uh, you know, and, and Power Slave and ACDC. I had like all these ACDC tapes. I was already spending all of my lunch money on <laughs> bootleg ACDC tapes down at the, it was a place, place called Tracks on Wax. Um, so I had the old, whole catalog plus, plus, plus. I had some like bootlegs and stuff. And this, uh, right around the corner from my childhood home was this patch of woods. And this kid who had, you know, menaced me a couple times and was a pretty dangerous kid who you knew you got to stay away from, this kid named Ricky Casso, he lured his friend into the woods and killed him. Um, and uh, the, I think the darkest thing about it was, uh, which would also give you a little insight into what the kid culture was like in my town growing up, for two and a half weeks, he led tours of the body. To, uh, he brought other high school kids there to show them. And nobody snitched. And nobody was gonna snitch. The person who called the cops was a girl who was visiting from out of town, from another town, a few towns over called Dix Hills. And she overheard yeah. some kids talking at the movie theater about, do you want to go see the body? Let's go look at Gary's body or whatever, you know? Um, so it's a really like, I mean, I'm hearing myself say it and I'm like, oh. yeah. <laughs> um, but that was the, that was, that was the woods that was woods behind my house, you know? Uh, and my mother was freaked out. Everybody's mother was freaked out. Everybody's teacher was freaked out. Everybody's priest was freaked out. And of course the blame game was this sort of like, it's gotta be the music. 
kid got arrested. Ricky Castle got arrested with his big ACDC, you know, bootleg ACDC flick of the switch t-shirt on. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it just, it ruined being able to listen to that music with innocence at the same time that it was the first instance for me of noticing adult hypocrisy. Maybe couldn't put words to it at the age of 10, but like, there's something wrong with this. Like, this is like, this can't, this is, you know, this is maybe not even Ricky's fault. Like he was 17 years old. Like these are, we're talking about children, you know? So um, something somewhere went wrong with the parents and nobody wanted to say that, you know, because it was this white, leafy suburb uh, supposed to be you know lower upper middle class whatever blah 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 so um i don't know it was it was weird and that was why i wasn't allowed to go to northport high school it was two two to uh, two years later 1986 i'm applying for uh high schools uh to go away to to, to um, i didn't even think about it my parents were like you're not going to northport high school <laughs> with the fucking heroin, you know, angel dust kids who kill each other, blah, blah, blah. So it was like, it was like that, you know. Um, no sooner did I develop my uh, musical identity uh, than it was immediately under the hot white light of like parental hypocrisy and, and judgment and authority figures and, um, and all that. So, um, yeah, it was a weird time to be a metalhead or a burgeoning metalhead or be interested in that kind of music because you couldn't really say, well, actually, I'm not sure that there really is a Satan and that's kind of stupid and I like the way Angus's guitar sounds. and It means <laughs> alternate current, direct current. It doesn't mean anti-Christ devil. You know, like it, it just you couldn't, you couldn't, as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old, you weren't about to get a word in on that conversation. So Oh, yeah. It was suddenly you had to be sort of like inward about your musical existence. That combined with me being sort of alienated from the kids in my hometown, going to a faraway sort of um, um, boys school. You know, it wasn't a it was a college prep school, but it wasn't like a boarding school or anything like that. It was like it was like seventy five percent of the kids who went there, their parents were cops or firemen, kind of thing. So it was Catholic uh, boys school like that. So all this hypocrisy, animosity is kind of the backdrop for what became your first album. That's right. It's this the setting for Teenage Dirtbag uh, and the vernacular usage of it. That Rolling Stone article by David Breskin about the murder was uh, November 22nd, 1984 was the issue of Rolling Stone. Um, that's the first time that Dirtbag, I've ever seen it used in its sort of like period correct uh, usage in, in print and it was it was hyphenated i don't think he should have done that but um yeah but uh but he but you know that's and that was a quote it was he was just it's just the our articles mostly just quotes from the kids in my town and the way they're talking about this is like we have a problem houston like oh my god you know so it's an interesting read though feels otherworldly it feels feels like surreal no i think people who just watch you know listen to the song and watch the music video they have no idea this backstory behind it and all this stuff. It's kind of crazy because I can only speak to my own experience. I think I was in fifth grade when the song came out and when the, your first album dropped. And it literally was just like, what the fuck did I just listen to? Because it completely changed the game for me. Because at that time, I, had, I was the kid with the braces, the glasses. I just felt like a complete outsider at the time. And I felt that that song directly spoke to me like probably a lot of your fans. They have a similar reaction to that. 
and it kind of countered a lot of that, you know, toxic masculinity that was happening at the time, probably that you went through and also through, you know, the early 2000s, where it was, if it didn't sound like, you know, Green Day, Blink-182, you know, that's why I really love, you know, Good Charlotte and bands like, you know, Bowling for Soup, something that was different. And as a kid growing up, the worst thing you could be called was, you know, gay or, or feminine or something like that. And those things really stung. I'm glad they've kind of been, you know, eviscerated from the culture now. But I'm, I'm so curious, how have you felt that, you know, that album and that song have kind of, you know, took a part in, in really being impactful and kind of breaking down that type of masculinity at the time? Hold on, Brendan. Give me a minute to tell my listeners about Simply Safe Home Security. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated you never use it. That's exactly the type of system Simply Safe has spent a decade fighting against. It was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7. Order online, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. It's that simple. My listeners, head to simplysafe.com slash team and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash team. It feels good to fear less. And now, back to the show. Yeah. Um, no, that's a lot there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I get what you're saying. It was a weird cycle that uh, there was a lot of toxic masculinity as I was growing up. And then that's, that cultural cycle was resurging when we put our first album out. And I was very intent on almost creating uh, a taunt for that toxic masculinity, you know, sounding um, with a high voice and all, all the things that I couldn't avoid having when I was a kid and was probably caught a, caught a couple of extra beatdowns for. Um, <laughs> these were things that, like I mentioned in the article, there was this thing that I used to do where, you know, if I knew it was going to happen, I knew I was going to get it, my ass stomped. Um, one of the things I would do is kind of like respond with a high effeminated voice, not so that you would like just get to the point faster. Like let's, let's, you know, let's, let's catalyze this. Like let's, let's get going, you know, cause I don't want to sit here back and forth talking to you. I know you're going to beat the shit out of me in about 15 minutes if we just talk. But if I, if I pretend I'm a girl for a little while, you'll, you'll be unnerved and you'll swing sooner. So let's go, you know? So that, that was like a, that's like a taunt that I learned early on. Um, and I still kind of carried it into our music quite a bit is to specifically to antagonize homophobes, the end, you know? Yeah. And, and just to challenge that, that toxic masculinity that you're talking about. And when we hit the road, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but when we hit the road in 2000, we encountered a lot of that in its adult form, which at the time, was really ugly and stupid. Um, but uh, yeah, it was like, you know, with that, that new metal, you know, from 1999 to 2002 kind of zone of, of heavy music was like, sometimes it was like, Oh God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. A hundred percent. We wound up on radio shows with all of those bands and I didn't have anything against anybody personally, but you know, there's a cultural, there is a cultural um, loggerheads there, you know. We we weren't playing in drop B with, you know, like, you know. <laughs> so, so you know, I have a I have a lot of skepticism about like the notion of toughness and all that stuff, you know. Oh yeah, nonsensical to me. That that's Gabrielle right there with her phone ringing. <laughs> Oh, hi. Oh, yeah, there he is. 
And today's our day to uh, to say hi to our new garbage man. <laughs> <laughs> I even think I made my mom take me to you know the movie Loser with Jason Biggs from American Pie just to just to hear the song again. I think like I I don't know maybe I just remember watching it on you know DVD or or VHS or something, but. How did that come about where your approach to, you know, really make the music video for the movie? That's funny, man. Uh, I don't think either one of us knew that we were making something for the movie or for the band or anything like that. It was this weird prequel thing. Um, and it was so cool. It was like really chill and, and just kind of came together. Um, we didn't really have anything to do with it as a band. <laughs> Suddenly there was this like opportunity to be, uh, we got we were suddenly like a Columbia TriStar and Columbia Records. You know, obviously this uh, the movie company is related to the to the record company. But um, uh, somebody was like, "Hey, you want to be in a in a move in an Amy Heckerling movie?" And I was like, "Yes, <laughs> Clueless, Fast Times. It's like everything she makes is a classic. Right. Everything. So except for Loser. <laughs> well, yeah. So, but but you'd be surprised, man. So many people that I we bump into are like, "Oh, that's." that's her best film. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know, man. It's like, it's of it. You know what it is? It's of a different time. It's not of my generation. It's of a next generation, you know? Um, so, but the, but you know, uh, I was a huge fan of the blues brothers when I was a kid, we got a song in like, uh, with Dan Aykroyd standing in the frame, you know, <laughs> like that's, you know, that's standing there, man. Like that. And, and, uh, you know, also, um, helicopter fly-in shot of the of the world trade center as a new york band the year before the towers came down that was like one of these like for posterity oh my god you know um i think uh i think that movie helped us a lot uh, and i think the movie's a lot like us like we're yeah. not we're not a big smash success we're not fast times at ridgemont heim we're losers you know like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know so uh, I uh, I've I have a soft spot for it, and I and I'm glad we were we were associated with it, and I'm super glad that they got into our video and were willing, so generously willing to be a part of this strange prequel narrative from these idiots from Long Island. <laughs> so I have to ask you, I want to you know take you in the time machine back 20 years. What was the response like? You know, because you're making something in your in your mom's basement, I believe, like, and then you put it out into the world. You know, you're proud of it. Your record label is proud of it, but then you kind of leave, you leave it out there and people just run with it, have their own interpretations of it, have their own feelings towards it. What was it like kind of navigating that success that we were experiencing for the first time and having it played on MTV and, you know, the movie comes out. It must've been a crazy time. It was interesting. We never, we never had a chance to get used to it or feel like we had accomplished something permanent. Uh, mostly because the record came out in August of 2000 Look, by the beginning of, uh, by, by Thanksgiving of that year, Sony wasn't calling us back anymore. Like it, it had come and gone in the States. We were on a lonely tour doing like two people in Lawrence, Kansas, you know? <laughs> so it was like, it was, it was bare bones at that point. Um, and we were talking about going back and making another album, like maybe, or maybe just calling it quits. Like there was, there was all kinds of, we were always very frank with one another about what was working and what hadn't worked. And, you know, um, we were lucky enough, myself, my brother, um, Mike McCabe and, and Phil Jimenez in particular, he was my production partner on the record. And we had had enough uh, sort of major label experience at that point to know that this is how it went. 
You know, you you can have a great song, you can have a great good album, you could have a good video, and still, mm, you know. Um, so we were kind of being realistic about it, and then we got the call in early December uh, that the, it had gone uh, quadruple platinum in Australia, and we were flying down there for Christmas. And I was like, No, I'm not doing that. I have to like, I still have bronchitis from October. Like, I'm going home, going to bed. You know, <laughs> no, you're going to Australia. Blah blah. blah. So we went. And we did great. Um, it was it was really fun. It, and then we had started, the discussion turned into like, well, maybe we can have a little career in Australia. <laughs> like, what could be sustainable about this? We were very realistic, you know. Um, and then we wound up uh, uh, starting. We started making a record in Australia to that end to try and like set up shop in a place where we were welcome, where we where people knew who we were. And uh, people wanted to work with us, most importantly. And uh, then uh, in, in February, the same thing happened in England. And then one by one, the European territories, it repeated. So at that point, the record went platinum. We were suddenly playing the Princess Trust party in the park in between Meatloaf and Beyonce, <laughs> meeting Prince and like on TV and stuff and it was I'm telling you man from from that uh, from that Thanksgiving where nothing was going on in 2000 to the following June of 2021 uh, of 2001 2001 right before September 11th everything we were we were in Abbey Road recording with Bruce Dickinson and like all this like that that first half of 2001 was insane and we never got a chance to even come close to getting used to it because uh, things got rough with the label around the third single. They were sending it out to a lot of DJs to remix and this music was coming back. That just wasn't us. Couldn't sound like yeah. us. We couldn't perform it live. It was just like, guys, 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 this is not the band we are. Please like stop trying to turn us into the gorillas, please. Like they're great. <laughs> they're gorillas, you know? Um, and, uh, uh, and then September 11th happened and, the whole music industry went, we're not going overseas for nine months, you know, pause. And we went, we were like one of the only bands that went to England to do and Europe to do a tour after September 11th. And it was really truncated and we lost a bit of money. And, uh, but we were still like, no, this is our first theater tour headlining. We're going to do 30 theaters in Europe and, and England. And we have to do this, you know? Uh, so we went and we did it. And it was, it turned us into a real band, you know, uh, not, I mean, the sense in the people who come to see us or, uh, you know, popularity or, or any of that. I mean, the way that we played, we changed the way that we played. We became a band that could play in a, in a big venue. And there's a very different, that's a very different thing that, that a lot of bands don't get the opportunity to, to learn how to do. Because the first time you play a big venue, you fuck it up. You yeah. always, you, you guaranteed the first time you're in an arena, you're going to blow it. And we had had this really janky show. Uh, we opened for the uh, bare naked ladies at the Philly spectrum in September of 2000. And it was like, as far as I was concerned, it was a disaster. I mean, <laughs> and like, what are we even like, this is weird. I don't use, it's like somebody took 700 gymnasiums and built them around you. And you, you just, playing in the wind and nobody's noticing and <laughs> we were using clubs you know where there's the kid smiling right in front of you and you know all that so um 
But by the time uh, the next year rolled around, we were actually ready for this tour that we were advised not to do because of September 11th. And we did the tour anyway, and we became, we got an experience there that we would normally have not had access to. So it was, that was worth it. And then we tried to do the same, same thing year on, year on. So every year since 2001, we've gone back to Europe, back to England, and done you know, 60 days or 45 days, whatever, whatever we can book in clubs, one after the other. And um, we did that until 2009, financial crisis hit. We slowed it down because it was like nobody had any money. No one's going to buy tickets that year. But 2010, we hit the road again, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And then we got invited to do an arena tour with Busted in 2016. And we got the direct support slot. And that was 100% sold out. Uh, 18 shows, all arenas in, uh, in the UK. Uh, there's a bit of footage from, from that on YouTube, which is like our kind of like our proudest big moment or something or, you know, but, um, yeah, it's been a weird ride. We, we've wind up in strange places, something, nothing will happen for a couple of months. And then it's like, um, Oh, you got to go play a TV show in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. It's the most popular one. <laughs> So <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> we're not, <laughs> but, but it ha it happened. We wind up doing it and I, I've, but it's weird, unexpected and like, okay, yeah, sure. Everything's a gift, you know? Yeah. No, it seems like it was bad timing and your head really didn't get too big because September 11th probably just humbled everyone. And at that point, it's just like, you know, what could we do from here on out to kind of resemble normalcy and kind of have a usual kind of tour. But it really wasn't possible with that kind of on your mind and, you know, in the country's mind, let alone the world. I remember when September 11th happened, suddenly everything that I had written on the first album and everything that I had prepared for the second one just felt like frivolous nonsense, you know, like, like just stupid. And yeah. um, it was hard to, it was hard to find a place that made sense to like, this is my song, you know? Um, after that but we did some things we added a cover to the set that that helped uh john lennon's nobody told me there'd be days like these the the solo song that he did i love that song that's my favorite john lennon solo and we put it in the set and we kind of like put it put it up front in the set and talked about how like none of this makes sense anymore but that's what that's what john lennon wrote this song about i guess so let's do this and it was like you know cool it, it it made it a little bit more more sensible. So this is this is a difficult question, but I'm always so curious of bands who find such success that early. And it seems like more and more bands do. You know, that first album, you spend your whole life in a sense making. And then you get asked to do a second album by the label, and then you have like a year or whatever it is to make it. It's like I spent my whole life making this first album, and then you're put right back to work to make the second one, and you're trying to recreate that magic, that spark. How did you find it when it was like, okay, now we got to do what's next. The label's asking for more. You're trying to put new stuff out there. How did you balance that kind of, okay, how do we recreate it? How do we get back to what we did that first time? So our second album is, has this weird status amongst a certain group of kids who come to see us. They don't even want to hear Teenage Dirtbag. They just want the second album. The second yeah. album is like another band, you know? And if I had it to do over again, I might've put the second album out first. Um, I worked really hard at making a record that was like a sharp, hard hitting, like aggressive 
dry, but dry in the sense of like 70s pop disco kind of thing that really punched and really hit hard and was and created a pop uh, polish and color like like rainbow uh, out of really gnarly, disgusting sounds. Um, Flaming Lips come to mind. Tragically Hip, um, uh, Guided by Voices. Um, these were the things that were kind of pushing me toward, but, but accessible sing-along, you know, pop music. Yeah. And I, we succeeded at that. I'm very proud of our second record. But the thing it doesn't have is this Teenage Dirtbag Part 2, which there isn't and will never be one of those. Why do that? You know, like that's like George Lucas making his prequels, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just end it. Just don't, no more, no more. <laughs> but money comes, always comes into play, right? It's all about money at the end of the day. Sort of, yeah. And, and uh, the, the record that we delivered, our A&R guy thought it blew the first record away. He was really excited. And he's like, he's not impressed with anything. He, <laughs> he did, had no reason to tell us that anything was ever good. But, um, but he liked it. And... There was a big argument about which single to pick and all that stuff. You know, the cool thing about that is as though um, a band today might not find themselves in that scenario because today it's easier to do a licensing deal for your first record and then step away from the label and say, well, maybe we'll come back to you guys, but that was just for the first one. Like, if I had Teenage Dirtbag all wrapped up and finished and like I put it out today, who knows? It might not be. It might not hit the way that it did in 2000, uh, but if it did, then I would coast on that for a bit and then withdraw and find a better partner for the second album. You know, what the problem is, is like lots of, lots of musicians and artists write great second records, masterpieces, Darkness yeah. on the Down, I mentioned earlier. Um, but what they don't get is a, a label, a delivery system uh, where the relationships are such that the art is understood, that the art is like, that they get it, you know, that they're going to like deliver what, what, and uh, you know, I mean, look, most bands are signed for one song and the reaction is this gut reaction. And maybe they, maybe they get a good gut reaction to that first song, but do they understand the artist and what the artist is capable of and how the music is going to evolve? Probably not. It's very, it's the rarest case. Even a band like Rush, right? Rush, their second record was this like Caress of Steel, just like, you know, well, actually, technically, I guess Fly By Night was their second record. But their second record with Neil was Caress of Steel and it tanked and the label was like, you know, you guys are screwed. You got one more chance. You got to do what we tell you. And they instead kind of went like this and made 2112 which nobody at the label understood <laughs> like, <laughs> like if they didn't get caress of steel lakeside park and all that stuff they're definitely not gonna get fucking you know the shit that's on the 2112 concept so so i mean that art that became who they were yeah you know and there yeah. was then then rush was identified by 2112 for a decade until they Tom Sawyer replaced it, you know, or less than a decade, but you know what I mean? 76 to, wow, four short years between Tom Sawyer. That blows me away. Well, Tom Sawyer was 
one. So it's, that's five years, but, but still that's such a short period of time. I'm just realizing how, <laughs> how that development is. But uh, anyway, the, the point being that, you know, there's lots of great second records as maybe there isn't a great relationship for delivering that second record. True. And I want to kind of touch on that in, how do you think it would have, how do you think the band would have managed today and yourself in the age of social media? Because I think a lot of artists now have a direct link to their audience. They're able to pretty much talk to them directly on what their intention is, how was the album created, even on, you could go on Apple Music and you could read a whole thing about the band, how they created the album, this kind of interface where you're only, you know, one DM away from your favorite artist and anyone can kind of reach out and you're kind of getting direct feedback from the fans in real time. And I know people and artists now are doing it on Patreon and kind of getting what their listeners want to feel. How do you think the band would have managed in today, in 2020, with social media? That's almost an impossible question to answer, but I'll take a shot. I think that, um, I think, I think the record may have been um, more varied. Uh, back then, you made albums with 10 songs on them and there had to be this kind of arc where they all kind of made sense in the long term, but they had to be like 10 songs, right? Uh, the Taylor Swift record that came out last night's got like 17 <laughs> songs on it. And hence as a 17 song arc, you know, I've had some on yeah. and I listened to every track three, three times, you know, right through. And the secret, but people don't listen in order anymore. That's the problem, right? I have to. But the interesting part about that is it's like, there's so much more choice for the listener. Listener can, pick their favorite song is track 12 that don't listen to anything else from that record except for track 12. <laughs> uh, or you can take, a, you know, if you're doing a, a two hour workout, you can take a look at what Taylor meant by one, two, three, four, five, six, like there. And she, and there's purpose in that arc. It's, it's not arbitrary. So I think that it's like cool. Cause there's, it's, it's all things at the same time in that regard. I, as an X generation person, I have some old habits that rub against the new social media kind of vibe, but not that bad. Like I quite enjoy social media. Um, I take it uh, in smaller chunks. I yell at Donald Trump sometimes, but <laughs> one on the timeline that everybody is subjected to, I try hard to make that interactive and be a listener and only present stuff that's really interesting to me. It doesn't have to be music. It could be a picture of a bug in my backyard, you know? Um, but, uh, but um, it's really, it's, it's an inst instant sort of endorphin hit to be able to take something that makes, gives you an emotion and throw it on the internet and see who else gets the emotion that goes. That's not me. That's not necessarily music. Um, but what is music if it's not like a conveyance for emotion, right? That's why we did it. Yeah. We learned how to play guitar because it was a way to communicate with people emotionally. Uh, well, there's lots of different ways to do that. Now you don't have to just be a musician or, or an artist or something like that. You can be a Twitch celebrity. Yeah. Be really good at playing um, emulator games on NES. You know, I mean, <laughs> like, like yeah. there's lots of different ways to connect with people. Um, and I think some of that's good and some of that's bad. For instance, I think like Nazis are able to find each other a lot easier also. That's not a great thing, but, but most people aren't Nazis, which is great. So they're talking and they're having no, no, not hating on, you know, but, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm meandering, but I think that the answer is, is that had I grown up uh, two decades later, I would have really, uh, 
enjoyed this, but I'm not sure that the setting for Teenage Dirtbag would have been possible if that were the case, because the amount of, in 1984, the only thing you could do if you woke up on a Saturday and you wanted to do something was either to hop on your bike and just go see who's around or dial one of the four phone numbers you had memorized from your grammar school lunch table and see if anybody was able to come out, you know, like that kind of thing. So you were very, you had to be very comfortable with being alone and having your emotions to yourself, not be shareable. Um, there was no instant endorphin button on the phone. You know? Yeah. No, I think you make a good point. I don't know if teenage dirtbag has the same resonance if it's released today. I think a lot like TV and TV shows got, you know, millions and millions of viewers back then, whatever was on, you know, the four major channels. And nowadays it's so fragmented, so segmented. If your first album just comes out on a random Sunday or Monday and, you know, maybe it picks up steam, maybe it doesn't. I don't know if there's the same amount of eyeballs and people listening to it as there were in 2000. Yeah. It might've got lost in the sauce. Sure. Um, uh, it's a quirky song. It has like three verses and two choruses <laughs> and stuff, two different choruses. So maybe it would have stood out for that reason, but it also might not have gotten any traction for that reason. So I like to think it would have regardless, but you never know. Again, this is an impossible question to answer. Uh, I'm, I'm curious going forward now, just in the music business in general, it's become so tough for artists to make music now that everything has gone to streaming. And it seems like the only way artists really do make money is through touring. And now with COVID-19, I don't know what the future of live performance is. Maybe it's just, you know, Zoom meetings. Maybe you're just rocking out to a Zoom conference full of fans. I don't know what it is. But where do you see the industry going? Uh, maybe the concept of performance needs to either be tweaked or abandoned. So, like, performance hmm. is this thing where, like, I show up at the venue with my guitar and my microphone and I sing you a song. It's from me to you. The stage is here. You're there. Security is in between us. On a Zoom cast, I can pick somebody on our Patreon. We do a Patreon Zoom, and we can say, hey, um, you know, our friend Lee from, uh, from Yorkshire has a question. Um, he wants you to play a little bit of this Fleetwood Mac song and talk about the lyrics because he thinks it means one thing and, you, you know, it could mean something else. So then it's an interactive, and there isn't the heavy responsibility of like, watch out, somebody might get hurt because the stage fan barrier is broken. There isn't the security concern. Rather, it's just an exchange of ideas that's in a controlled and safe environment. So for us, we've cho chosen to try and approach that opportunity with, like, with a bit of a tinkerer's mind and find out how we can turn it into something that we could never do on stage. Because there's gotta be something. There's gotta be something we can do on this format that we couldn't possibly try live. Um, we're, doing, we're doing song challenges. I'm having like guest friends of, of ours come on and say, okay, play Nelson's, uh, you know, I can't live without your love and affection. <laughs> now, do I, do I, did I like that one? No, <laughs> but, but that's an interesting challenge because fuck what I think. It's about the audience now. So like if, yeah. they, if they have something that they want to see me interpret because they have a preconceived notion, let's see what happens when I stumble through it. It might be interesting, you know? It doesn't have to be perfect. Not yeah. what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be interactive. So maybe. No, I think, you're, I think you're right. Yeah, it's a dialogue really in that sense. And I think 
I don't even know. I was reading that, you know, chain smokers is doing some sort of live event in the Hamptons where you just purchase like parking lot size squares that are six feet apart from each other. And that's how you interact and, you know, watch the show. I don't know if that's where we go from here. I'm really curious, but I think you're right. I think more kind of zoom conferences, you know, kind of live over the internet types of things where it's real time feedback from the listeners as you're playing, maybe where this ultimately ends up. I just had a few more questions for you. You've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it, Brendan. Sure. No I know the Rolling Stone article mentioned a potential documentary. Is that in the works? Yes. Uh, it's called You Might Die. Um, oops, I lost you. How did I do that? Hang on. <laughs> I can still see oh, you. Oh, you can? Shoot. <laughs> trying to make myself brighter, and I made myself go. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so, um, yeah, the, the documentary that uh, is being is in the works right now is called You Might Die. Um, it essentially follows us. It picked up with us on tour in, I think, 2010, right after the financial crisis, when things were really shaky uh, money-wise. And goes through several years there of our attempts to have sustainable touring, kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's a very stressful film, I might add. It doesn't paint me in a very good light, but <laughs> I'm not into like polishing my, you know, what somebody caught on film. Um, so. Uh, you know, it's just the stress of the road and trying to make sure that the, the wheels don't come off and nobody gets killed um, from 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, and then up to the arena tour. And, um, and right, right, uh, right up to 2018 is right through when it, when it carries. Um, and it's quite a bit about uh, my childhood in there and, um, you know, mental health stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, it's an interesting film. I, I, to watch a movie about yourself is, and then be asked about <laughs> it is like really weird, but, um, but I, I'm, I'm somewhat proud of it at this point, even if it is, you know, it's kind of warts and all kind of thing. So, um, I want people to see it and we're, we're, I think we're, I think we're very nearly done with it, you know? Yeah, no, I can't wait to see it. Uh, we end on five rapid fire questions. Last one before we get to that, I think a lot of artists are, it's, it's difficult to have a relationship when you kind of have that one hit song like Teenage Dirtbag, but it seems like you just embrace it. Like you don't mind that fans keep asking for it. They keep wanting to hear it. It seems like your relationship with it is a really healthy one. Yeah. Well, I think that that might be uh, mostly because it is my own song. Um, I'm, I am proud of it. I, it wasn't concocted by a manager and it wasn't cooked up in a laboratory and it wasn't produced by anybody else. Um, I think a lot of bands wind up having to carry some baggage around that somebody else prepared for them. And that might be like kind of like a, a lot of, a lot of songs that become one hit wonders are, are these novelty songs that the band never did anything else like, or wasn't a real, wasn't a real intention of the band. This song yeah. was our real, was my real intention. So it's easier in that sense. It's also like, the really simple part about it is that like when I was 10 years old and I wanted to be Angus Young, I would have taken any version of what he was doing for my life, you know, no matter what. Um, so it was, uh, it's, it's easy to, um, to feel strongly about it because of that uh, and to continue playing it because of that, because it represents our, uh, our ability to make a song people care about, which is just basic, you know? Yeah. 
Um, no, I love the song. And I, I texted my sister that I was having you on and she's like, oh my God, top five song all time. So, you know, you have two fans here. Uh, we end each episode of the podcast with five rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Any shows that you're currently binge watching? Uh, I found a television station that plays only house. And <laughs> <laughs> What was that house and what else? Star Trek from the, <laughs> from the original 60s show all the way up through the other versions, the new generation and the next generation and all that stuff. So I'm, watch, I'm, watching, uh, I'm watching Star Trek and House when I watch TV. <laughs> How does House hold up? I love House. I love Hugh Laurie, one of my favorite shows. Uh, the first couple of seasons there, just like The Sopranos, they're kind of trying to find their feet a little bit. But then, like, I think it really gets cooking around <laughs> for, um, yeah, I like, I like House. I like House. <laughs> so, uh, so many bands have covered Teenage Dirtbag. Is there any band today that you would love to see their rendition of the song? There's one artist who I think would get it more than anybody else uh, in the pop world, and that's Gaga. I, I've wanted Lady Gaga to cover <laughs> since she started making records. Because I think she, she's from New York, too. You know, there's a bit of a... Uh, the sensibility is intact there. She actually, like, in a weird kind of story, she went to NYU with our bass player, Matthew, for a year, I think. They were his classmates. Um, and uh, that's just an aside. But, but, the, but the, I, think she, I think she would kill it. I think she gets it. And I think a young Gaga was also in The Sopranos, if I believe, a very uh, early role for her. Oh, you know, I didn't know that. What, uh, what do you, you remember what season, what, what episode? I do not. I'd have to look that up. But yeah, I think she got her start on The Sopranos. Uh, next question, favorite venue to perform? Oh, man. Anywhere in Scotland. Probably King Tut's, um, but anywhere in Scotland. Uh, Scot That's a good choice. Yeah. Uh, close second. Wales really really like more like a tie, neck and neck tie is Wales uh the, the I don't know what it is about those places those cultures are they will not let you have a bad show you know it's just they're they're in it they're in it with you in this way that nobody else really does uh next one do you still rock the bucket hat <laughs> <laughs> so um, oh, there you go for my listeners you just put Brendan just put on the bucket hat <laughs> I uh <laughs> You know, the weird thing is, is I would a lot of time outside riding my bike because there's like, I don't know, the general malaise seems to be alleviated out, outdoors. But the sun in New York this summer has been brutal. So this happens to be the only hat that I <laughs> brim where I don't get like, like a sunburn on my ears, you know, so I've been wearing this stupid thing again <laughs> out, in, out on the sidewalk with my bike like, duh, um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of feels goofy sometimes, but I'm kind of here to own it anyway. Yeah. I love that. Uh, so this is a, this is a fun one. So since you're recreating the album, are there any plans to recreate the teenage dirtbag music video shot for shot? You have the, you have the bucket hat, man. Can I tell you that video costs a lot of money back? <laughs> <laughs> and it like all really expensive like hollywood production right now of course you could make a video like that for you know with your phone now right yeah um which is kind of great maybe i don't know <laughs> but that's a we cross that bridge when we come to it i guess like somebody would have to really have a plan for that see the thing is like that's kind of idea that i can't really spearhead myself that would have to be somebody else's passion you know <laughs> and i would get behind it oh i'd be in it 
but like just i don't know pulling that together and <laughs> you know and jason about being in this yeah again that would be <laughs> pretty funny that'd be pretty funny hopefully with the traction of this podcast we get it done uh one last one and this is a personal request of mine do you mind if we use teenage dirtbag 2020 as the intro to this podcast moving forward oh go for it man definitely do that awesome awesome brendan i can't thank you enough for coming on the relunchables podcast i really appreciate your time no worries thanks for having me man it was a, it was a treat I would like to thank my guest, Brendan Brown, for joining the podcast. I hope to bring on a lot of artists from the 90s, 2000s on the podcast. And in just a few weeks, we'll be having on the lead singer of another band I flat out love, Bowling for Soup, who had such hits as Girl All the Bad Guys Want in 1985. Please subscribe to the Relunchables podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a rating or review, five stars only. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.